Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. If you want to follow along in the Bibles in the pew in front of you, it's, it's on page 692. Nehemiah, chapter 9. We'll be reading verse 1 through 5, and then skipping down to verse 15 and reading till the end of the chapter. Again, Nehemiah, chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Joshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabani, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Joshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodadiah, Shebiani, and Pethiana said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting and everlasting. Now down to verse 15. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hands to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen to and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them Excuse me. Uh, on their way. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. You took over the country of Shion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured and fortified cities and fertile lands. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who opposed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. 
From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard them from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinance, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them, but your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of a neighboring people. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let the, all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and our leaders, on our priests and our prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statues you warned them to keep. Even while they were in your kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat of its fruit and the other good things it produces. Thanks, Ellen. Good morning, everyone. One of my college girlfriends once said to me, you're not very good at being a human being. In my defense, this is also the one that married me. Um, so she's either forgiving or I improved, I guess. But by the time I was in college, though, I'd already accepted Christ and, um, and sort of committed to try to be his disciple. But um, even though that may have made me more chivalrous than some of the other gentlemen living around me, um, what it also led to was a strong sense in which I was not in any way living in accordance with how God had created me to live. And though I may not have engaged in some more spectacular and exciting sins that some of my colleagues engaged in, um, that didn't mean I was a good man in any meaningful sense, or that I did good stuff most of the time. And partly because I also have a relatively sensitive temperament, morally speaking, um, I became very well acquainted in the years preceding this, and especially in those years, with um, the human feelings of both guilt and shame. One of the reasons why um, this is somewhat interesting to me is that um, uh, Jill and I have been doing a bunch of research on uh, in really, we're getting ready for the sexuality conference and stuff related to sexual trauma because we're trying to take, especially the women's um, forgiven and free in that direction of dealing with trauma because of, there is so much of it in the most broad definition of that word. And so 
and for other reasons. And one of the things that we have found pretty regularly is that people use those words and mean exceedingly different things by them. Um, for example, in anthropology and in missiology, um, the word shame is usually what we, how we try to make other people in our community feel appropriate guilt that they don't appear to be feeling. So, for example, yesterday I was driving to a quick trip in Verona, and there's, uh, when you drive there, you get off like the interstate, and there's this really long right turn lane, right? It's like 200 yards long, and so I got off the interstate, and I turned immediately into the turn lane the moment it like went out, but I didn't turn on my signal light to do it. And so there was a guy waiting to turn left, looking for me to signal to him that I was moving, and I think I wasted like five seconds of his time. So even with my window closed at 200 yards, I could hear the homophobic invective that he screamed at me, because he was trying to help me feel appropriate guilt that I apparently didn't feel for not putting on my signal light, and he was trying to help me feel the shame that I should, right? And generally speaking, like, you know, if you walk along and there's like some guy kicking kittens and apparently enjoying it, you might say something like, dude, you should stop doing that. You should be ashamed of yourself, right? What that means, socially speaking, is if you—if your sense of personal guilt in terms of what's right and wrong and what you should and shouldn't do isn't properly calibrated, I'm going to come alongside of you and help you feel what you should feel and put the appropriate social pressure on you so that you won't be a moral monster, right? That's what shame tends to mean anthropologically and social, socially speaking and, like, missiologically speaking. That's not how psychologists use the term in the present moment, at least popularly and secularly speaking, Right? In the present moment, secularly speaking, within at least popular psychology— so I'm not saying like a really good counselor would use these terms this way, but this is the way if you— if a number of people are doing it. I'm not going to drop names because I, I don't want to attack people directly. Now, within modern popular secular psychology, shame and guilt are separated in this way. Guilt is when you do something that— where you don't live up to your own values, and you feel a breach in your own sense of personal integrity. I say that I believe this. I just did this. What am I going to do about that? Right? And in that sense, that can be very adaptive and therapeutic, a psychologist would say. Like, you can be like, well, I don't want to be that person, and I need to change my behavior. Maybe I need to go apologize. Or What am I going to do about that? Right? Shame is fundamentally different within contemporary psychology in that shame means is a judgment on you in terms of yourself, your being. It's to say, not I just did something bad. What am I going to do about it? But I'm a bad person right? Specifically in, re- in relationship to believing that therefore, because you're a bad person, you are unworthy or incapable of giving and receiving love. You don't deserve connection. Does that make sense? Now, historically, we used to, I think, use a more precise word of self-loathing or self-contempt for that instead of the word shame. I think shame is way too general. I think that that's vocabulary malpractice. But that's what the words mean right now, okay? Now, that leads to a couple of problems right? Within counseling right now, generally speaking, people will say that guilt is, can be a productive emotion. Shame is an, ex- an exclusively or, or entirely unproductive emotion. Now, that's a problem. In fact, one author says that shame needs to be abandoned because it actually makes you dangerous, not just that it's not productive, right? Actually, the most popular current author. Now, there's some problems with this. Um, one is that it's philosophically profoundly inconsistent. It doesn't make any sense, to say it directly. So, for example, your values you don't believe are arbitrary. You believe that your values are rooted in something because that's why your values give you meaning. If you believe that your values are nothing more than your own personal preference between chocolate and vanilla ice cream, then your values are literally meaningless, and they don't provide the meaning that you need to psychologically be happy when you live according to them. 
So you believe your values are objective, not just subjective. Everyone believes that. And so therefore, when you commit some kind of thing where you feel guilty, it's not because you believe you have just sort of, you know, transgressed your own arbitrary values. You believe you've done something wrong. Now, that creates a couple of problems. One is you recognize that it's not just simply an issue of do you want to do such a thing again? You've already done the thing. The thing is morally significant, and there's no way out. Think about it in legal terms. We can— we, we might have a court case relative to whether or not a crime is committed, but what happens the minute we decide the crime's been committed? The person who committed the crime is now a criminal. Because there is no formal difference between the event and the person who did it, not in terms of its standing morally, right? Which leads to the question, well, if guilt is doing something bad and shame is being a bad person, how asbestos-filled is the firewall between those two things? How many bad things do you have to do to be a bad person? At some point, are you a bad person? If you sat down as a counselor with Hitler before he died, and he felt bad about how things were going, would you say, you know, this isn't about you being a bad person. We, we can't possibly evaluate that. All we can talk about is the last thing you did that you felt was wrong based on your values. Would you like to behave differently? And is there anybody you should apologize to? Like at some level, you've got to realize that if you do enough bad things, you're probably a bad person. And if connection and love are deserved on the basis of your moral standing, which is questionable, then you don't deserve love and connection. Right? Which is one of the reasons why a Christian simply cannot accept that layout. Nor should any reasonable psychologist. Right? Christians have always understood that both guilt and shame— however they're defined, if they're defined in any way carefully, can be both productive and destructive. They're just simply not emotions that you can simply characterize as productive or unproductive. There is guilt that is not productive. If your values are screwed up, and therefore you judge one of your behaviors to be wrong when it actually isn't, and then you reorder your character because you don't want to be that kind of person— but your values are messed up to begin with, and you're not judging the thing correctly, guilt can be a profoundly misguiding emotion, even if you use it adaptively. And shame can be very helpful if you, in fact, are a terrible person. If you are a person who is very difficult to love, very dangerous to love, who hurts people that they love, who does it very consistently, who doesn't seem to have any moral gravity in your soul about it, you need something more than somebody being like, well, if you feel guilty about it, then maybe we could adjust your behavior some if you feel that way. It may be important for you to realize that you're a terrible person. And maybe that is the most productive feeling you could possibly feel. Because until you experience a sense of moral gravity that ties you to reality in a way that you must respond to God's reality— you, you will never face the horror of sin and experience the possibility of the need of atonement. You see, one of the reasons why irreligious, secular versions of popular psychology can't admit to shame as a productive resource is because they have no access to atonement. And that's why shame does make you dangerous from that perspective. 
Because what do you do to a person who has made things wrong and can't ever make them right again? Right? People like that are just, they're going to get in deeper and deeper and deeper. There's no way out. And so if you say, I've become a bad person, and there's no way to wipe the slate clean, there's no way to make it right, there's no way to get out of that, there's, all you can do is go deeper. And so you become really dangerous. Either to your own integrity, because you have to believe, you have to like bury your real soul and pretend you're somebody completely different and go through this very self-destructive process of trying to remake yourself into a false self that you can then use in the world, which is really ugly, or you actually feel the sense of horror that you're lost. And you lick the earth to taste whatever you can until you die. You see, it's, it's interesting people think that religions are the same. It's only the Judeo-Christian tradition, and presently only the Christian tradition, that actually practices a fundamental concept of divine-given atonement. That you can both admit that you're a bad person and be freed from the moral horror of that into the open arms of the loving God who has accepted you by mercy, not because you deserve it. But you see, that cannot be experienced until the human soul recognizes its true state, both in its full guilt and in its impending shame. And the human soul that recognizes where it really stands morally and what it really is morally, only then can the human soul be put in a state where it can turn to God in a way that can lead to God restoring that relationship and connection? Can they really have an authentic relationship with other people in which they can offer themselves and actually be a safe object and recipient of love and connection? And honestly, it's the only way you can have the inner integrity within yourself where you actually are the real person you're trying to be. So that you can actually even have connection with your own soul. Right? The, uh, the Christian notion that the human soul has to become sensible of the horrors of its treachery before God, that it's not only guilty, but deserving of maximal and infinite shame in a therapeutic way that leads to repentance, salvation, and no regret in the heart. The historic word for this is called penitence which is really just the Latin word for repentance. But it is the state of soul where we are repentant of attitude. Now, what Scripture teaches is that penitence leads to the act of repentance. It leads to the result of salvation. And it actually is the only real way to experience freedom from shame. Now, you might be like, Nick, I don't see how giving myself to shame is a way that I'm going to actually be free from shame. But here's the problem. If you try to save yourself from shame by believing you don't deserve it, now, it's likely you don't deserve all of the shame you feel. Okay? There is some shame that you feel you don't deserve, but then there's probably a bunch of other shame that you don't feel that you do deserve. So don't believe the mixture of shame that's in your heart is correct, right? 
The Apostle Paul once said, uh, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent, right? He's, he's saying, my moral evaluation of myself is by no means correct. I, I'm, just, I'm just dealing with the best sense that I have of it honestly before God, but I don't pretend it's right, right? There are some ways in which people have perpetrated things on you that you feel ashamed, ashamed about that you actually don't need to feel shame for. And there's other ways in which you have been a sinful perpetrator of harm to others that you aren't sensible of and don't feel shame for. Right? That's not the point. The point is once we recognize the true weight of shame that we all deserve, which is enough to damn us no matter what you think you're, wherever you think you're at, how do you then become free of it? And the answer, Christianly speaking, has always been that in penitence you accept reality so that you can be set free by a plea for mercy. That's the Christian view. It's always been the Christian view. And you can't have a Christian view that isn't some version of that view. The reason why it's absolutely important is once you realize that your soul deserves to feel a bunch of shame, and you, and you say, no, what I need to do is recognize shame is not therapeutic and not productive. Therefore, I need to put it out of my mind and heart. What you're actually doing is repressing it. You're trying to not know something you can't help but know about yourself. And the minute you do that, what you're trying to do is to give yourself security in your heart by rejecting integrity in your soul. You're trying to get safety by splitting yourself in two. It's a—it doesn't work. And only through penitence, by coming to God as we really are in complete honesty and in absolute vulnerability, by sacrificing security so that we might have integrity in our plea for mercy, can God give us both security and integrity through atonement and regeneration and salvation and lead us to a place where we are with him beyond our shame and in which because we use our experiences of shame and guilt and our redemption from them as ways to love and help others our shame and our guilt and all the actions therewith and all of our sins become mechanisms of a new righteousness and a new love by which we bring value and flourishing into the lives of others through sacrificial living and through life and through love. But if, we, if we, you persuade yourself and you accept the shortcut that it, with just a little vulnerability and courage, you can step forward and be the person you were meant to be. It is a shortcut that will poison the interior of your heart in such a way as that you will never have the integrity of soul you were meant to have, and it is the gift and inheritance of Jesus through his purchase of your atonement. Okay, we better get going here. The most explicit place in the Bible that teaches this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It says this, the Apostle Paul has written 1 Corinthians already, and he like attacked them morally about a bunch of stuff that they weren't living up to in the gospel. And he's like, you need to repent and believe. And it was, he knew that it would emotionally harm them, that they would feel ashamed when they read it, and he was concerned about how they would emotionally respond to that, right? And so in the second Corinthians, his, his associate Titus has gone to see them. They've responded really well, and this is what he writes now knowing how they've responded. He says, even if I caused you sorrow— Okay, so the Apostle Paul is using the word sorrow— as a catch-all for the emotional pain we feel in our, in our guilt and shame. There's a certain amount of pain we feel. It's, and he, he uses the word sorrow, okay? That's what he means when he says sorrow. If I cause you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. 
Yet now I'm happy because you were, because, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Okay, now notice what he's saying here is, God wants you to experience this kind of sorrow. It's critical. It's important. It's intentional. And, but you have to experience a, a certain kind of way, right? What is that way? That it led you to repentance, and the, therefore, because that sorrow led you to repentance, you actually have not been harmed by us in any way. Why? Because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Do you see the point he's making? The right kind of penitence, the right kind of sorrow in the right context of both the law of God and the love of God, his moral challenge and his offer of mercy together produces a certain kind of penitential sorrow that leads you to repentance. Repentance leads you to call to God for his mercy and atonement. Therefore, it leads to salvation. And then when you've received the freeing, slate-cleaning work of atonement that frees you from sin and guilt, it leads you to a place that though you have many things objectively you would regret, that is, if you could go back, you would change them, you don't have regret, that is, you are no longer haunted by them, and the sorrow of them, that is, the emotional pain, is put away. So you have all the wisdom from having been that person to use in the future, but no longer the soul-crushing sorrow that affects us before we receive salvation, right? And so he says, but then he says, listen, but listen, there's other kinds of sorrow. The pain of guilt and shame can be felt in what he calls a worldly sorrow. And he's like, listen, that will destroy you. If the kind of sorrow that you feel is a self-loathing, an expression of self-condemnation and self-hatred, if the only way it's operating in your life is in your personal self-centered regret, where you hate yourself for doing it, and you really believe that no one and nothing could possibly love you, even God, even other people, even yourself, then that will rot you from the inside out, ultimately crush you, and destroy you in terms of leading you to eternal condemnation. That is, the, the way that leads to is death. In that sense, that kind of shame, Christian faith completely agrees is an entirely unproductive emotion, but we don't just stop at unproductive, or even that it could make you dangerous. We would argue that it is completely destroying and even damning. Right? And then he ends with this. Do you see what this godly sorrow has produced in you? You see, it's caused you to flourish. It's produced something good. Yes, it was a painful death, but every seed has to die when it's put in the ground in order to grow the fruitful plant that it's meant to produce. He says, think about this. What did it produce? An earnestness. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Justice in that sense, justice done to you right? Like the willingness to be, look, whatever needs to be done to me should be done to me. I deserve it. That willingness to see justice done even to ourselves is something that this kind of sorrow produces. And he says, at every point you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter, meaning that their repentance was really penitent, that they'd really turned to God, and they had called out for his atonement, and that their 
their emotions weren't confused. They weren't worldly sorrow one minute and godly sorrow another minute. They were pursuing God in these things, and so they only wanted what was true and good and right, and there was no self-interest involved. It's not like, well, what's going to happen to me? It doesn't matter what's going to happen to me. What is the truth? And what does God say? And what does that mean for me? And what must I do? Right? And when you think about it that way, the answer is, what you have to do is you have to turn to God. And you have to turn to his atonement. You have to ask and call out for his mercy. You have to stop trying to protect yourself and keep yourself safe. You have to open yourself up in complete vulnerability to the one who can destroy you because he's the only one who can also heal you. Right? And he said, ultimately, you can see before God, you could see for yourself how devoted to us you are. And to us in this context, he means to us, the ones who've preached the gospel to you. So by grappling with this godly sorrow and facing their own guilt and shame, he was saying, what you were finding out is you were finding out for yourself how devoted you are to the gospel. And you found out that you were devoted to the gospel because it led you to Jesus, right? Now, how does this relate to Nehemiah? In chapter 9, there's five parts of ways in which um, the people are experiencing true penitence. There's a number of things that penitence will lead you through, a number of ways in which you cooperate with it and react and respond to it in such a way so that your heart can really be taken in this productive direction rather than in this like spiraling, however you want to say it, direction that will ultimately lead to death. Does that make sense? So let's go through these five things quickly. One is that deep penitence arises from grappling with the Word of God. Deep penitence arises from grappling with the Word of God. There's a reason why God hasn't just left us to look at the world and the stars and science to realize things about himself, right? The Bible says in places like Psalm 19 that the, that the natural creation tells us a lot of things about God, but there's some things it doesn't tell us, and a lot of those things are moral things. And so God has specifically spoken and shown himself in the written scriptures and in the man Jesus Christ so as to both confront and comfort us, show his demands to us, but also call us in mercy to himself. And it's only by grappling with these truths and letting them attack us and mess with us and create sorrow in us that real, ordered, morally weighty, penitence that brings about the integrity of salvation and real security in God can come about. You can see this in a number of places in in the book of Nehemiah, especially in the last two chapters. So Mike preached last week in chapter 8, and there's like, chapter 8 starts with everybody hearing the law read. And they had, some of these people had never heard it their whole lives. And when they heard it, they wanted to weep and wail and mourn, remember? And they said, listen, this is actually a festival day. You're not allowed to cry. You have to be happy. Because God has given you joy, so go and celebrate the Festival of Trumpets. And then it says what happened is they did that, and then all of these leaders in the city said, we'd better study this. <laughs> like, we've heard enough, but we don't get it yet. So the head, the male heads of every household, the Levites and the priests all got together with this guy, Ezra the scribe, who was like a law junkie. And they were, they sat under his teaching and they learned from him for what looks like a couple of weeks, right? Now, now notice, the Levites and the priests had to do this. Like, literally the priests of God— And the people whose job it was to know what was spiritually true and teach it to people, they didn't know any of the stuff. And so these people grappled together, and what it says is they discovered when they were grappling with God's word that there was this festival they were supposed to celebrate in like a week, the Festival of Booths, right? And so they're like, oh my gosh, I guess we better do this. So they celebrate the Festival of Booths. But one of the things you're supposed to do in the Festival of Booths is read the Bible. 
right? Every seventh year, and they hadn't done it in like, you know, a hundred, you're supposed to read like the whole Bible during the festival of booths. So they all celebrate this festival of booths, and then everybody hears the Bible read again, right? And then the result of that is at the end of it, remember, you know how this, remember how this passage starts? On the 24th day? Well, the festival of the booths runs from the 15th day to the 22nd day. See, the result of them hearing the Bible read was them saying, oh my gosh, man, like we have to do something about this. Like God wants us to change. He wants, somehow he wants to interact with us. Like somehow we have to get reconnected to him. So two days later, after they don't have to be happy anymore, they're like, we can finally be sad and cry. Okay, this is great. So they get together just two days later and they all get together. And what do they do? For the first quarter of the day, they read the Bible again. So before they mourn and cry and repent and create a new covenant with God, right, a new agreement that they will follow the covenant, they listen to the words of Scripture read again, and then then they respond with confession, oh my gosh, God, we've done this all wrong, and worship. The God that we're calling out to for mercy is amazingly great. And then the whole chapter is just a retelling of the Word of God. They're like, God, this is why we think we can re-covenant with you. Because what we have heard when we've heard the Bible read to us is a story of you being good and generous and then everybody like defecating on your goodness and then you are good and generous again to them. And then everybody just like burns your house down and spits in your face and then you're good to them again. And then they're horrifically terrible to you and then you're good to them again. And if that's the pattern, if that's what you're really like and if that's been our heritage, you might be willing to be merciful to us again. So we think we could turn to you and you would be merciful to us. And they were right. Because they'd grappled with God's word, right? And so one of the things that I think we need to face is that you and I are never going to perpetually experience what it means to really live in the penitence of God unless we grapple consistently with the word of God. Which means that you have to commit yourself to read, like reading the Bible to consistently going to a church that preaches from God's Word, both in its confronting and comforting message, both its law and gospel, so that it is challenging you, and sometimes you feel ashamed, but then it offers you the Word of grace and mercy from Christ, and His atoning work over that, having perfectly performed for you, so that that shame creates a sense of moral seriousness and a longing and earnestness to change, and leads you to fresh repentance and conviction, and yet and yet peace comes, and there is no regret, and you're led into some new day in Christ. And that comes from grappling with the Word of God, and that has to happen over and over again, right? And that doesn't just include listening to preaching and reading the Bible, but it also includes just like in your friendships. Do you invite people telling you the truth, right? Because you have other friends in here at High Point who read the Bible, and they know the Word of God, and like they know you, and they know what you probably need to hear, and are you an open vessel to them? Do they know that if there's anything you fear for them, that you'll—that they should tell it to you because you want to grapple with the Word of God? There's just a young man this morning that I had noticed something kind of peripheral, and I just pulled him aside for a few minutes. I said, listen, I'm going to tell you this thing. I'm not saying it's true about you, but this is—this is something I I think you might want to think about. And I told it to him, and it was—it probably was embarrassing for him, right? And and when he got done, he did exactly what I knew he would do. He said, thank you so much for telling me that. Because I have watched him over a couple of years, 
and seeing that he cares about whatever fault he has. He cares about the word of God. He wants to hear the truth because he wants to respond to God. And if I have some peace that I can give him, he wants it. I know he wants it, right? But are you that kind of person? Does everybody in your life know that you want it? You want the truth. Because if you don't, and that's not evident, people are not going to give it to you. In fact, Jesus literally told them not to. Do Do you know that? That if you're not the kind of person who's open to the truth, if you attack people when they tell you the truth, Jesus explicitly told people not to tell you the truth, including the good news of the gospel. Let me read it to you, in case you don't know. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet, and then they will turn and tear you to pieces. that, that, That has nothing to do with dogs and pigs has everything to do with people. When people tell you the truth, what do you do? Do you, do you love them for it? Or do you stomp on what they tell you and then turn and attack them? Are you willing to, do you want to grapple with the word of God? Okay, secondly is, penitence expresses repentance in decisive and symbolic honesty. Decisive and symbolic honesty. So one of the things that you'll see with people, with the people in this passage, let me do the passage first, then we'll talk about ourselves, is these people show up, right? And they're fasting. They're re- now listen, I know you're like, I fasted from my phone for 27 minutes. Like I fasted from Instagram for like almost 13 hours. It was crazy. And like I missed, I missed a whole meme and like, right? Okay, listen. That's not fasting. Okay. Now listen, I, like I'm generally open as a spiritual discipline, generally to stop doing things that are getting too much of your attention, no matter what they are, which would include your phone, which would include, that's fine. But when you read fasting in the Bible, it never refers to anything but not eating. Okay, can just, we just be clear about that? Fasting in the Bible never refers to anything but not eating food. Okay? Are we good? <laughs> now you can, you can fast on other things, but just don't be like, well, I'm, I'm just a, 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 a good faster. Like, I didn't, I didn't watch Netflix for an hour. You know, like, that's just not what it means, right? And why? Because our bodies naturally worship food in a way they don't worship almost anything else. And we get cranky and grumpy and our, like, our blood sugars get out of whack and we get angry and stuff and we just like, we don't like to not eat. Nobody likes to not eat, okay? And it's, it, it's, it's a trial to us and we don't like it. And food is a god to us. And fasting is very uncomfortable for most people, especially well-fed, sugared people like ourselves. And so that is a symbolic action to say to God, I am, I, I can't even eat. I'm so— I'm so upset about this. Like, what, like honest to God, like, honestly, think about this for a second. When was the last time you couldn't eat? Because of something so morally important that wasn't self-interested to you. Has that ever happened? <laughs> right? Like, the, these people just like, I, I, now some of these people could have eaten just fine. But they chose not to as a symbolic action of how sensible they wanted their heart to be about the horror of their treachery before God. They, 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 and so they did it even if they could have eaten. They did it because it was a symbolic action and a decisive action. Same thing about wearing sackcloth, right? Sackcloth is the cheapest fabric there is. They make sacks out of it. And so it's usually like burlap. It's super itchy. It's bad for your skin and stuff like that. And they wear it because it's awful. It's ugly. It's itchy. It's awful, right? And they actually put it on like clothes because they don't want to be comforted by their clothing and they don't want to look good because they know in their heart they're ugly. 
And so they put this on, and they, and they symbolize poverty and brokenness and discomfort and ugliness. And they, they're doing it symbolically to say, this is how I feel. This is who I am. This is where I'm at, God. Right? And they put dirt on their heads because they know they're nothing but dust. And from the earth they've come. Back to the earth they'll be. They're, in some ways, they're very weak creatures. And they separated by faith in this. It says this, the seed of Israel separated from the sons of the land. Meaning that they were like, wait, we're either God's people or we're not. And this commitment can only be made by somebody who completely and holistically accepts the word of God. And we have to choose to be those people. And so there's something symbolic in that separation. Right? And so on. Right? They stood for a half a day. They engaged in a very formal confession. They wrote a lengthy covenant of worship, and so on. They did all these things, right? And you see, I, I've had—I've I've, I've talked to people who um, feel like when they go to places where people, like liturgical places where people are like on their knees, now they're sitting, now they're standing, now they're down their knees. They're like, that's such formalism, right? And then those same people will go to like a charismatic church where people raise their hands or they're kneeling in the aisles or they're like laying on the ground under the pews. And they're like, those people are just crazy. And I'm just like, like at, at what point can somebody do something with their body and like you find it meaningful? Because in the entire history of the world, people felt that way. That like there are ways in which in order to express penitence, you should do something with your body. Like you should get on your knees and put your face on the ground as a symbolic action of humility. And you're like, but I don't really feel that humble. Well, then maybe you should kneel more, not less. Like maybe you need to do with your body what you, what you wish you could get your emotions to do. Because it may not be that it's not the right emotion. It may be that you're so emotionally dead by your repression of your shame that you're not capable of feeling the proper emotion. And maybe the right thing to do is to do what you know is right with your body until your emotions begin to come online on the basis of the true integration of who you were meant to be. Did I say that too fast? <laughs> you see the point? Like, sometimes you just have to— sometimes you should raise your hands if you think God is amazing. If you need to receive from him, maybe you should do this. Maybe there are times when you should kneel. Maybe there's times when you should, like— don't tear your clothes off in church. That you, it's just you rip the clothes, you don't tear them off, just to be clear, right? But like, th there were times where people would tear their good clothing when something bad enough happened. Because you're like, I'm ruined. I'm ruined before God. Like, do stuff. Like, and sometimes it's, it can be functional. Like, this last, this last week, I went back to um, a journal that I've been writing for 10 years. And I went through and I took out all of the quotes Every time I felt like God was showing me something special, every resolution I made, and I rewrote them all out at the end of the journal, and then I rewrote them all again in the beginning of my new journal, right? And in a way, it was meant to be a symbolic action of my committing to the things that God had shown me, remembering the things that God had shown me, recommitting to and remembering the things that God had shown me to set me up for my next 10 years of prayer and devotion to Him. But like, it's good to come up with— these sorts of things, and to do symbolic and decisive actions, right? But like, also in terms of decisive actions are things like believing in Jesus. Like some of you are waiting on a process of long-term increased faith, and you don't really know where you, if you feel like where you are, and you have, but you haven't really professed faith in Christ. Like, you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ and said, I am a Christian, and then gotten baptized. You haven't decisively confessed and done it. And you see, there are some things that are a process, but then there are other parts sometimes even within a process where something decisive needs to happen. 
Repentance is supposed to lead you to the decisive event of rejecting your sin and turning to God and accepting Christ's atonement and counting yourself as belonging to Christ and then doing what goes along with that, which are sometimes rituals that is symbolic actions like baptism, communion, right? Third is—I'm not doing very well time management-wise. Acknowledge the good, kindness, and severity of God. I wrote my journal in 2015, God is very right, not barely right in what he does. That wasn't meant to be like— let me just write down something that Captain Obvious would say. It was because I had been feeling the opposite, right? Christians generally, even if as a Christian you would not accuse God of wrongdoing formally, we tend to believe that, yes, God is right, but he's sort of like barely right, and that actually makes me kind of resent him because he should be a lot more right than he is right, right? We, we, you know what I mean? Maybe you're not where you could admit that you think that, but there's a lot of people who they really do feel that way. They, they, they're like, I believe in God. God is right because how am I supposed to, how am I going to say God is wrong? But I feel like he's just barely right, and he ought to be a lot more right. And the reason I wrote that in my journal is because I—there's this point where I had this realization where I felt like God was being saying, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not barely right. I'm very right. Way more right than you think. Right? And one of the things that has to happen in true penitence is you have to get to the place where you're not sharing blame with God. You're not like, well, I did some things, but God did some things, and hmm. Right? The, the people of Israel get to the point where they go through the whole story because they're grappling with the Bible, and they say, okay, here's what really happened, guys. God gave us everything, and then we were terrible, and then he responded to us being terrible by giving us everything again. Some things even better than the first time, and then we responded by being terrible, and then God was incredibly generous with us. Okay, what's happening here? Do you see the theme? The theme here is that God has been good every time. And you see, penitence always has to get to that place. Because you won't cry out to God for mercy until you recognize that he is the only character of absolutely fundamental goodwill in the equation. You have to see that, yeah, and you have to believe it. Right? It's— um, it's a little bit like if you imagine this. Imagine you're like in high school and you got like, you wanted to beat up some kid, but he's kind of a little too tough for you. And you were like, okay, here's some of this guy. I'm going to jump off the bleachers onto his head at the next football game. And so you like, you get on the bleachers and he's walking by and you like jump off the bleachers like onto his head. And like he realizes you're coming down and he's like puts his arms up and like you kind of hit them and you actually lose balance. You like flip backwards and you like hit your head on the concession stand and like cut your shoulder, one of your arms open, right? And then that person you just tried to jump on was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Let me help you. Right? It's a problem. Because one, you got to admit, to accept that person's help, you got to admit that that person has goodwill towards you, which means that in the jumping on thing, you were the person of bad will. Right? So, like, like for you to be—right? And then you've got to believe not only are you the person of bad will, but even though you did that bad will thing to that other person, in spite of that, that person still has enough goodwill that even though you just attacked him, he still wants to help you. So it's not just that you're the actor of bad will, but they have to have enough goodwill, right? And you see, that's what you have to believe about God to make yourself vulnerable enough to take your hands off of your wounds to let him help you. You've got to believe that you're the bad actor, and that he is such a good actor that he wants to heal you and help you even though you are the bad actor. Right? And you can see this all through this passage. Again and again, they're trying, to sh they're trying to tell themselves the truth that God is that good actor. Right? And so worshiping God as that good actor 
isn't just warranted, meaning, well, he deserves it. He is the good actor, so you ought to declare his worth, right, in symbolic and decisive ways. That is, engage in worship, in worshipful prayer, in worshipful song, in worshipful ritual, in worship, worshipful, anything worshipful you can think of. But it's not only warranted, it's needed. You and I need to remember every second that God is the great good actor. Or you're going to start thinking that you are. Because that's, that's what the harmed, self-justifying, repressing heart has to believe in the midst of its repressed shame. Right? Fourth is you have to profess your own treachery. You have to get to the point where you're like, no, 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 I'm, I didn't just do a couple of wrong things that I should evaluate therapeutically and adaptively. I am a terrible person. Like, my character, my being as a human has been marked by a narrative of treachery. That's true, right? If you look at this passage, just on and on, it just goes—I'm sorry, this is this passage, but before that, remember, Jesus said that the only person for whom there is no hope is the morally proud, the person who doesn't believe they need salvation, right? Jesus says, listen, like the Pharisees who were like the good people, they were like— I don't know why you eat with, like, tax collectors and sinners. Like, basically, like, it's funny. Tax collectors and sinners is kind of funny because it's, like, left-wing bad people and right-wing bad people, right? And, and he's like, yeah, I just eat with all of them. And they're like, well, why do you do that? And he's like, listen, I'm like a doctor. I came for the sick. Now, that doesn't just mean I came for bad people and you really are good people. He's saying, I'm, I am a doctor to those who will come to me for care. That is, you have to admit you need it. And that's exactly what these, these Israelites do in Nehemiah 9. They say over and over, they're like, Dude, we were terrible in every conceivable way. We didn't just do some sins. We were treacherous on so many levels. We didn't just do bad stuff. We killed people who told us to do good stuff. We didn't obey stuff that would have led to good life. Like, your law gives life, and we didn't do it. And not only that, like, we were intentionally stubborn, and we were we rejected it, and we didn't just not do the thing, but we hardened our hearts against it. Like, in every conceivable way, we made ourselves your enemy. Like, that's what we did. And over and over again, they freely and openly confess it. Now, the reason I think that that's important, I'm going to only talk about this one right now, right? You should confess. Every time you confess, you should without saving face or holding back. You have to let go of the pride of offensiveness because justification is— is on the condition of incrimination. Okay, so that's the most evocative way I could say it, right? Um, if you—so think about this. How would you like for someone to apologize to you? How would you like for someone to apologize to you? If somebody had done something really terrible to you, right? You, you don't want them to come and apologize in such a way as that if you then sued them, they could defend themselves, <laughs> Right? You would want them to fully and completely admit to the completeness of their wrongdoing without blaming you. That's what you would want, right? You would, you would want them to fully incriminate themselves. You would want their apology to be able to be read back to them in court as a confession <laughs> that led to their immediate conviction. This is important to, in, on at least three levels. It's, it's important on, first on the level in your relating to God. Don't if you are not incriminating yourself to damnation in your confession toward God, you're not—this is not godly sorrow. It's not penitence. Do you understand? It's just not. That's also true if you're apologizing to another person. 
right? Because the break in your relationship isn't, isn't directly rooted in the thing they did to you. The break in your relationship is, is rooted in that thing because it's a symbol that they can't trust you, right? The sin you committed against them, right? right? And if, if you've ever repented well, you know this, because you can do something pretty bad and really truly repent of it and fully incriminate yourself and say, I'm never going to do that again. Like, I, I want to be somebody you can completely trust. I'm sorry for what I did. And you can see that person just wipe that thing away. It's gone. Because they really believe you wish you could go back and change it. You have every intention to never do it again. You don't want to be that person. You want to be, because you want to be a person in communion with them and in relationship and belonging that they can completely trust. Now listen, if you hold back fully incriminating yourself when you apologize for something, what you're saying is, in the end, I will always choose me over you. That's what you're saying. Because if you want to incriminate yourself in order to restore the relationship with them, what you're saying is, me not incriminating me is more important to me than me fully restoring the trust in my relationship with you. Which means, I will always, in the end, choose me over you which means how much can they trust you? Well, as long as it's in your self-interest. And then when it's not, you'll betray them. Right? And that same thing is true with God. If you confess to God only so much as to not incriminate yourself, how much mercy are you really asking for? Well, none is the answer. And if you don't fully confess to yourself what you're really like, then are you really bringing your fear of, of losing your security into a real sense of having a real integrity in your own heart. No, you're still, you're still two selves that won't reconcile. Telling yourself the truth about yourself is how you bring the broken parts of yourself back into union. You can't even have a self without that level of honesty. And, and therefore, to, to bring those three levels of communion, you have to confess in such a way as to incriminate yourself. And you see, the irony of the gospel is when you completely incriminate yourself, when you confess to the capital, the capital offense that could eternally damn you, that is the condition of atonement. And the moment you are self-professedly guilty of all, Jesus gives you all of his righteousness and takes all of your guilt and shame. Do you understand? It's at that moment. It's that moment that restores you to God. It's that moment that restores you to others. It's that moment that restores you to yourself. That is the fundamental basis of penitence, which leads to the real honesty and urgency of repentance, which leads to receiving the atonement of Christ for salvation and can truly free you from your shame and guilt so that you can live without regret but so that you can have as an asset the wisdom that comes from all that you've done wrong. To love people with that knowledge in the future and to bring flourishing into their lives. But that can only come when the sorrow that we feel is godly sorrow. Right? For the last few weeks, we've been trying to end the service with more worship, that the word precedes the worship. You could see that that's what happens in Nehemiah 8 and 9, that they read the word and out of the word comes worship. And so my hope is, is that based on what I've told you now, that you will use the next few minutes, we're going to do three songs, to just symbolically and 
courageously and confessedly to fully give yourself to the right warranted and needed rituals of worship. You can use different body language. You can tear your shirt if you need to, but like respond to God with true penitence so that he can build in you true piety. Let's pray. God, as we do this, please be with us. Please help us. Please come near us and help us to sense that as we worship you now. You deserve it. This is warranted. That we would worship you is warranted. And that you have pre-promised that when we open ourselves in this vulnerability, you have pre-promised that you will pour out your mercy on us. That at the moment of our incrimination, you will justify us. Father, please help us to experience the peace of God right now. The peace that comes from that complete vulnerability and openness to you, that full honesty in which you save. Please pour out your spirit now to do these works in Jesus' name.